Coming up on this week's show are some legendary companies coming back from the dead. The most impressive Game Boy Advance game ever. And we get the inside story from Sega Europe with Nick Alexander. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now check out Atari 2600 and 7800, a visual compendium, celebrating the look of the company that kickstarted the video game industry back in the 70s and dominated it for the next decade. All the details and the rest of their retro gaming books are at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 310, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And it's our favourite time of the week again, just before the weekend when we get to completely nerd out about classic video games and, of course, take you behind the scenes on the industry that shaped us as people. I think it's fair to say that video games are a massive part of our lives, aren't they? Absolutely, 100%. When when you said it then, when you said it, it shaped us as people, it really did. Like, I joke sometimes that I was brought up by my Mega Drive or by my GameCube, <laughs> you know, um, and, and I really do stand by that. So it 100% shaped me. Um, so if that's how you feel about games, then this is the place to be, the retro I, hour. Is- I still sit in the dark, you know, curtains exactly. closed, playing <laughs> games, like, middle-aged. <laughs> you know, it definitely shaped me. You know what, though, because um, obviously the world's been all over the place over the last couple of years, but actually there is something nice, isn't there, about, you know, just kind of shutting the news off, like you said, turning the lights off, drawing the curtains and suddenly booting up your Mega Drive or your Super Nintendo and all of a sudden, you know, you're 12 years old again and all the worries in the world are just gone, aren't they? 100 million percent, just turning off any sort of, you know, your modern devices and stuff and just shutting in with a bit of Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, that's, that's, that's for me, that's therapy. And also like modern games, I tend to get beaten by a 12 year old. So it's kind of good to well. play the retro ones where it's me by myself. Well, you know, one thing I love about doing this podcast and, you know, I think this is really where we excel. When we get the stories from people who were actually there at the time and, you know, I love it when we get, you know, stories from people who are actually running the show because today we're going to be joined by um, a chap called Nick Alexander. Now, uh, Nick, an absolute legend. Not only was he the uh, pretty much the, the guy that set up Virgin Games with Richard Branson back in the 80s, but then he was the ex-CEO of Sega Europe as well. So this is such an interesting chat, and I don't think Nick's ever done a podcast before, so actually this is stuff that you might not have heard before because, you know, we, we hear a lot about Sega, but generally it's always from the American or the Japanese perspective, isn't it? You don't really hear much about what happened in Europe and, and the UK in particular back in the heyday. Yeah, it's very, very Sega of America focused. And like a lot of guests that we've had previously have been Sega of America. And you, mm. you actually did this one solo, Dan, as well. So, you know, usually I join you for an interview, but you know, technically we couldn't. So I'm actually really <laughs> looking forward to hearing what this one's about and kind of hearing the whole thing, like when the show comes out. Yeah, I mean, I can't ourselves lucky that, you know, in 310 episodes, generally getting guests online and everything, it's been completely fine. We did have a bit of a technical nightmare with Nick for some reason. All the systems we normally use just weren't playing ball. Um, so in the end, after about an hour of messing around, I said, look, I'm just going to ring you on the phone. So we did it that way. I did it on the phone with him. So the quality might not be, you know, the usual high fidelity that you get from this show, we'd like to think. But, you know, it's kind of like listening to, uh, you know, a caller on the radio, really. So I say, I, it I makes it, it retro. Is. <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. it's like old school radio it's got that this nice aesthetic show, but... you know it's like yeah 
and it's definitely worth persevering as well so you can hear those stories i mean because i i kind of said to him you know because he was there at like the time when it was you know a really important time for sega um you know he was, he was there when the master system was on the market and then obviously had the job of launching the mega drive um and also you know i talked to him about the launches of like you know sonic 2 you know sonic tuesday how they coordinated that campaign globally and also kind of got into what he thought about you know the mega cd and the 32x and the challenges of being there at the time when you know i mentioned to nick in the interview that i, I remember hearing and you know in magazines and on tv shows like games master when the 32X was coming out, the Sega Saturn was already about to be launched in Japan. So that must have been a hard job actually kind of selling the buzz on that as well, you know, when everyone knew the next big thing was coming along. Um, and we chat about stuff like, you know, Night Trap and those kind of games that came out on the Mega CD. And just a really good chat about what the industry was like in that really exciting time for Sega. So really, really think you're going to enjoy this week's guest, Nick Alexander. He's on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, there's lots of news stories to get into. Should we just plough straight into the news this week? Because this has been absolutely everywhere. It seems like the week when, um, I guess maybe it's a thing that happens at the start of the year, uh, but a lot of trademarks seem to have been renewed over the last couple of weeks. Now, not only have we been sent these from, you know, so many people. I've been tagged on Twitter. People have posted it on Discord, sent us it on Facebook. I've even seen it on, um, you know, sites like Games Radar and Game Rant and stuff too, covering this, that two companies who um, we'll be very familiar with from back in the day that were acquired by other companies have now had their trademarks renewed. And this is Sony has renewed the trademark for Cygnosis, and Atari has filed a trademark renewal for Ocean. I think with the Ocean one, it could it's a hard one. You know, I don't want to be I don't want to be negative or anything like that. With the Ocean one, it could just be Atari own them, they own they own the rights, they own the logos. So they're just doing the, you know, like you say, the yearly renewal or the five yearly renewal. But with the Sony and Cygnosis one, it could be that, or it could be something is coming on the horizon because of you know, Cygnosis became, is it Studio Liverpool? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, I obviously don't know how copyrights work and stuff like that, but for them to actually renew the license for Cygnosis, and apparently some people have done some digging, they've done it for the logo as well, for the old Cygnosis owl rendered logo, you know, the owl and everything. Mm. So it could be nothing. I think people want it to be something, you know, are we, are we getting a new Lemmings or something? But I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. But if I had to, if I had to, put money on it i would say it's just the gen- general housekeeping but you know if i really wanted to play detective they could they, I, f- I feel like there could be something there with Cygnosis, maybe well they did that shadow of the beast release on uh the playstation didn't they and that was one of mm. Cygnosis is like the, the the modern remake and that was like one of mm. Cygnosis's main brands so there still seems to be like an interest there in regards to sony i think um Personally, I I think I was a bit annoyed, and everybody was when they kind of killed off Cygnosis because they had that nice um, kind of transition where they went over to the PlayStation and they did those mm. like early PlayStation titles, and there was some, yeah a wipeout. Yeah, 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 yeah. There that, that was some absolutely legendary. You know, imagine how many systems that sold. So I think I don't know if they still regard it as a big asset and uh, maybe kind of turn it into Studio Liverpool. I thought Studio Liverpool was going to be like you know, like Rockstar North or something. It was going to have that kind of huge identity and go and make groundbreaking stuff. And then it all kind of like just died off. Um, I really do hope they do something and they kind of, 
even if it's just re-releasing some of the PlayStation classics on the new machines, like, you know, with a nice kind of re remaster or something. I, I just think it's such an iconic brand. It's, it's just got that kind of European gaming association, hasn't it? That, um, Mm. other pay people might not see as such a big market i know whenever we go to events and that you're normally rocking a, a Cygnosis t-shirt you know i've got i've got <laughs> a Cygnosis car sticker right this is amazing <laughs> i no haven't car. got a car yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've got i'm such a fan i've got the car sticker so when i do get one i'm gonna stick it in the window <laughs> that's brilliant that is i ain't got a car but i've got a car sticker <laughs> and it's the owl as well it's so yeah. good Oh, that is such an iconic logo, isn't it, obviously? Um, and actually, you know, I, I've been seeing these stories posted everywhere over the last couple of days. And actually, there was a quite a big um, discussion thread on one of the um, the Amiga Facebook groups. You know, people in there going, uh, it's outrageous that, you know, Lemmings is not on modern platforms and they should release it on the iPhone and the iPad. And then someone actually screenshotted it, but it, it's been on there for three years on the on the App Store. <laughs> it just, obviously, no one really noticed. Um, but obviously, it goes under the Sony brand these yeah. days. But, I mean, we'll talk more about this in a second because there's some interesting developments with backward compatibility um, that Sony are doing at the moment. And, you know, we've heard these, you know, well, not really rumours. We know they're working on it. It's kind of a competitor they're doing to um, Xbox Game Pass yeah. where they're going to be, you know, I've heard that they're going to be putting a load of old titles on there as well. So maybe they're looking, you know, that regarding their back catalogue has been a bit more important than it used to. So maybe they're going to kind of trade in on that nostalgia by maybe putting the Cygnosis logo, you know, in front of maybe some games that had it originally, like Wipeout and Lemmings and stuff like well, that. Well, they pushed Wipeout a lot, didn't they? They had like Wipeout yeah. Pure, Wipeout Pulse, Wipeout HD. So they kept, they did kept pushing and Wipeout quite a lot. I think that's all that Studio Liverpool did at one point, Wipeout games. I think what you've just said there, Dan, is probably, I didn't even think ahead there, you know, and like you say, mm. it fits in nicely with our next story about backwards compatibility. Um, but yeah, I think now you've just kind of thrown that kind of that into the into the ring i think it could be that you know a little bit like mm. um on like netflix or disney plus where it's like you know you kind of cl- click on you know what genre or whatever and it could be something like that you click on Cygnosis, and now it's like okay here are all the Cygnosis games or something that would be really nice so it, it could be like the greatest hits kind of thing yeah 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 so that would be really cool if they if they had something like that in terms of ocean this is a bit more unknown to me because we know just kind of how wacky and out there and unpredictable current day Atari is. They could have anything planned for this. I mean, again, it could just be the fact that they they own this trademark and if they don't protect it, then it, you know, it lapses and someone else could use it, which I think is probably the most likely possibility. But if you'd have asked me, you know, two or three years ago, will Atari release a new console called the, the VCS? In the styling of the original again, I'd have been like, no chance. But, you know, it, it could be anything, I think, with uh, modern-day Atari. Maybe they're going to be building the um, the ocean cryptocurrency or the, the ocean hotel in Las Vegas or something. It, it could be something like that. Or it could be something to do with the VCS with the games on there. Some of them could be mm. ocean games, maybe. I'm not they, too sure. They also had a little tiny legacy of PlayStation games as well, didn't they, Ocean? So they just, just kind of dipped their toe in the water. Uh, with that so yeah i also associate them more with like the, the commodore 64 and the amiga and stuff like that um you know and, and mega drive i suppose but yeah i mean yeah 96 that was kind of that era when yeah obviously the playstation was massive then wasn't it maybe it's going to be the opposite to the cloud it would be called the ocean <laughs> and uh, <laughs> everything's stored there let's imagine the heads of Atari listening now, 
there's a good idea let's do that <laughs> so uh we'll keep an eye on that they're very interesting and you know i think maybe some people are kind of yeah <laughs> seeing that and just running away with it but we'll see what happens now the thing we were talking about then about the the playstation this a uh, you know, new competitor to um, xbox game pass they're working on right now and the problem has been with the the current hardware we know the last couple of generations ps4 and ps5 it could never run playstation 3 games because it was such a different architecture, and it went from, um, you know, the PowerPC cell CPU and the PS3 to um, X86, like the, the current systems run. So backwards compatibility was out the window. But I think Microsoft proved that you could do it. You know, the Xbox One's got quite similar hardware to the PlayStation 4, and they managed to get, you know, 360 games running on there that, was, again, was a PowerPC-based system. So a lot of people have been saying, you know, are they going to actually get around to making PlayStation 3 games work on the PS5. And not only did they put a trademark, um, they filed a trademark earlier this month that would apparently secure, and this is a quote, backward compatibility through use of a spoof clock with fine grain frequency control on the PlayStation, which I must admit is far too technical for me to understand, but apparently a lot of people are saying that could help with PlayStation 3, backward compatibility on there. I've got no idea what that means. Like the spoof <laughs> clock bit, is it like they spoof the system using a clock? Like, I've got no idea. That sounds right. Yeah, I sounds think it's, right. It, it probably means like the CPU clocks and yeah. uh, they're probably yeah. putting it at the right clock, pretending, and then it runs more accurately. But what I was thinking was PS3, you could emulate, uh, well, you could run PS2 games, couldn't you, in PS1? Only the original ones. It had the hardware on board. Oh, the very okay. First so so, so release. you don't think they'd be able to do that in software then? So that wouldn't open up a world of kind of older titles. Well, I imagine the PS2 would probably be that, that not much of a challenge for the, the PS5 to emulate. I imagine that is, you know, wouldn't be a problem. I think the PS3 is kind of the sticking point. Um, the PC seems to have some PS3 uh, emulators, though, that seem quite good. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the PlayStation 5 is really just a PC, isn't it? So I, I imagine you have certainly want to get this working on there. It's, it, it, they've got the team who could do it. Although, interestingly, um, there's a guy called Jordan Midler, who um, he posted this screenshot on Twitter the other day. He was looking for um, Dead or Alive on the PlayStation 5, and a listing for the PS3 version came up on the PSN store on um, on the PS5. So a lot of people are saying, is that kind of, you know, are they working on that and it's accidentally appeared to end users? Yeah, I, I see. I don't understand that because he put like, not to panic anyone, but free PS3 game shouldn't have a price when viewed on PS5. So is that because mm. would it actually come up because it is on the PlayStation shop on the PlayStation network? But it usually doesn't, those games wouldn't usually have prices on them because of they don't work on that console. Is that what he's trying to you say? You normally wouldn't see them at all. Yeah, oh, they okay. just don't show up. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's weird. They can't run on it. Yeah, the fact that it is now showing up and it, yeah. you know, there's a price then you can buy it. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. I mean, the other rumor I'm seeing in articles is, you know, because PlayStation is saying, you know, something big is coming to PlayStation this year, 2022, something massive coming. And a lot of people are saying it's them gearing up for their equivalent of Game Pass, you know, Xbox Game Pass. Yeah, yeah, they've got to rival that, haven't they? You know, they've got to rival that, you know, I know Sony are outdoing Microsoft with sales and stuff at the moment, but that is one of the things that Xbox have got, like, pretty much all my friends are PS5 and it's like, they're like, oh, you should play this game. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's on Game Pass, I'll check it out. And they're like, bloody hell, every game's Mm. on Game Pass. And I was like, there is a lot on there. 
But I feel like if they do do the Game Pass, which I'm sure they will, they will just chuck loads of old PS3 and PS4 games on there as well. Like not to mm. say that's a negative thing. Like I think that's a cool thing. But, you know, I think that'd be really good if it's just like, oh, here's a load of classic PS3 games as well, you know. You know, that yeah, he's played in but I also years. think I also think they're not going to take the opportunity to not sell you your old games again. So yeah, um, well, that's the thing, you know, you know, there's always that uh, there's price always, thing. Well, you pay for it anyway, aren't you? You pay for it anyway. This is called yeah. This is a thing called Spartacus. Apparently, that's the code name for it. Okay, um, but yeah, it, it will be like uh, yeah. I mean, what do you pay for Game Pass? Like ten ninety nine a month. Yeah, it's like, it, it. I think it's seven pound a month, or if you include it with your gold gold subscription, it's ten ninety nine. Yeah, there was some for a pound somewhere as well. So, yeah, yeah, Xbox always do that. Like, get three months of Game Pass for a pound, yep. and then it renews, <laughs> and you're like, oh, why is ten ninety nine going out of my bank? <laughs> yeah, I did that. I signed up for three months. That was like what two years ago. Yeah, I did that um, as well. That's so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how so they get you. So um, yeah, I think it, it does kind of feel like PlayStation fans are always, you know, going on about why can't I run my old games on it? Because you know, it kind of the opposite to what Microsoft do, where they they kind of you know you can run original Xbox games on the the current Xbox hardware. Um, you know, via emulation, obviously. But I, I'm in my studio now, and I've got my PlayStation Three set up here physically. Because there are games on there that I want to play, but I've got no other way of doing it apart from having this system set up in here. Mm-hmm. So it would be cool if you can play like you know some of the classics that came out on that on that. This system is going to be my diss of the hardware. new consoles. So uh, at least you can have some games to play now, Dan. I, I, I'm literally, I've like, I've had my Xbox Series X for like a month and I've played Castlevania Collection, the uh, Contra Collection. Pong. Um, I've been playing um, <laughs> Katamari Reroll, which is a PS2 game, uh, which is on Xbox Game Pass. So I have literally been playing like Super Nintendo and PlayStation 2 games on my Xbox for the last month. And I'm just like, why? <laughs> all that extra CPU power is like, use extra, me. Yeah, all that extra CPU to play some 16-bit games. Yeah, we, we are the guys who buy a PlayStation 5 to play the uh, the best of the Atari 2600 collection. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> but let's get um, real retro on this one there. Where this is a really, really cool story. And something that I don't know if you guys are the same. When I saw this at first, I thought, right, this is either fake or this is like some kind of hack or something. It it can't be real. My jaw dropped when I saw this. Someone has got the original Tomb Raider running incredibly well on a Game Boy Advance. And this looks, I mean, it's incredible because I, I did see on Twitter, even the developers of the original game were posting about it on Twitter going, you know, what what sort of wizardry is this? You know, there's those kind of quotes. Yeah, it's... I, it's it- Open Lara, which we saw before. Well, explain what Open Lara is then for people that don't know. It, it was an open source uh, version of Lara, uh, basically Tomb Raider, and um, it, it's mm. been ported and running on different systems. Um, this is really interesting, though, because, uh, like, you know, a lot of people have compared it to the Engage version, which was the kind of portable one that we saw before of uh, Tomb Raider. Now, do you have memories of the Engage one, Joe? yeah i was going to mention the engage version because of you know some people are saying oh you know this game boy advance version isn't running as well as the engage version and you know say what you will about that but my experience with the engage version is it was choppy as hell now don't get me wrong this one looks a little bit choppy but the engage version from memory looks slower than this one and it had that vertical screen there was a you know you couldn't see a lot on the engage version whereas on this game boy advance version i feel like 
you know, I mean, I'm probably wrong, but you can see just as much as you could on a PS, you know, on the PlayStation version. Mm. Um, it doesn't seem very zoomed in. Whereas, you know, with that vertical screen on the end gauge, it, it was so, you couldn't really see what was going around, happening around you very far. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And this, this one, so MVG did an awesome video about it. It's, um, it's an alpha release. So it obviously it's really early on and they're going to do like a optimized release in the future. Because this is literally the the PC assets have just been shoved on there, so everything is um, the kind of PC. So nothing's been optimized for any stuff. It's it's like the original game. Um, they've changed the perspective on it as well, so they have made it a bit of a narrower view. Like you're you're a bit closer in, and uh, they've obviously changed the resolution as well. But they'll they'll change that in future, and um, they'll make it a bit more optimized they'll actually work on it so the menus look a bit nicer and stuff like that and i think they could really push it um by just making it specifically for the game boy advance but this is kind of a proof of proof of concept at the moment and it's the alpha release so when we see a final of this it'd be really good and i think that was the same with the 3do one as well which was still running amazingly well and this to me it shows how good a kind of open source version can be or a reworked version of a game. So, like, it's a real pity that Take Two took down the GTA um, open sourced version that was coming out, uh, re GTA, uh, GTA 3, and Vice City, you know, because like you can see it getting ported onto so many different systems and more people can enjoy it. I've got that re uh, Vice City on my uh, Wii U as well, and that's been ported over, and there wasn't a, a decent gta title on the wii u so you know i really love these kind of open source reworked uh reverse engineered games of uh older ones and it's it's great that this lara's kind of survived uh for this long without um getting taken down by a company well for me the you know when i watched this like some mature drop because we've, we've talked about it on the show before and i know it you know it's not the same hardware but in terms of games that I saw on the Game Boy Advance, I always kind of equated them to like Super Nintendo kind of games. So the fact that something like this, a fully 3D rendered, and this looks like, I mean, you mentioned then it wasn't optimized. It looks like it runs incredibly smooth already. And I know the saying at MVG mentions it in his video that they, they are going to do more optimizations to make it run even better. But looking at that, I mean, it didn't look that far behind yeah, the and, kind of smoothness of the PlayStation. And that's what I was trying to say. It doesn't, it doesn't, look massively choppy you know like you say a lot of mm. the comments are like oh it doesn't look you know it doesn't look smooth enough and you know they're kind of having to defend it like oh it's not optimized enough but like i think that looks more than playable you know in the, yeah. in the state it's in at the moment um like i say i think it looks better than the engage version but like I, I don't know that could just be my memory failing me there but yeah man it, it does look awesome uh, my, my only um thing and i haven't played tomb raider in like 20 years the original one is there enough buttons <laughs> on the game Boy yeah i think there should be with the like playstation controller but um uh, if you remember the pc version was dos as well so like i think the requirements even on the pc weren't weren't that massively high for it um because you could still kind of run it on dos but obviously you needed the graphics cards and stuff but it was it was pretty early wasn't it tomb raider so yeah tomb raider is like 95 but yeah, I mean, well, the PlayStation controller had four L and R buttons, and the Game Boy Advance only has two. And then you've got f- four face buttons on the PlayStation, and only two on the Game Boy Advance. But like I say, I've not played it in a long time, so you might not need that many buttons. 
I think they've revamped a few as well. Looking at the comments, people are like, you use B to jump and stuff like that. So it might be like they've kind of reworked it a bit for the yeah, key comments. Maybe. On the- yeah. yeah, maybe. Maybe press like, you know, like up and A to do something. I don't know. But yeah, they probably have done that. Well, I'll link up MVG's video as well. It's like you said, it's really good. And he goes, you know, really technically in depth like he always does. And, you know, he's kind of talking about some of the, you know, the tricks that they've done to get it running in here. Because, um, you know, from watching his video, I learned that the, the Game Boy Advance actually has two different um, types of RAM on there. There's like a, a separate RAM that's on the 16-bit bus. But also there is RAM on the CPU die as well, which is quicker to access. So apparently some of the, you know, the kind of the 3D elements of it, they've actually put directly on the CPU RAM to make it run quicker. Um, and there's also some tricks to get like the lighting effects and stuff like that, which, you know, just look incredible for the hardware it runs on. So, yeah, I, I just think that's jaw-dropping. And when you've got the original developers of the, of the game going, wow, <laughs> in the comments, that's uh, a real proof that, you know, there's, there's a lot of skill behind this. Um, at the moment, I think it's only, like, I think three levels that they've got on there right now. Um, but they are saying that they could put the entire game, they reckon, on a 32-megabyte um, Game Boy Advance cartridge they could probably get it running on. So maybe the full game will be coming at some point, but um, that, yeah, would be know, crazy. That, that is mind-blowing. That would be crazy yeah, if they had the entire game on there. That would be insane. <laughs> so if you want to check out the uh, the video and the article, I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, all of us have got, you know, even though I, I don't really consider myself much of a game collector, I'm looking around now, you know, I've got like a few shelves of Amiga games in front of me now. Obviously, I've got my, my Jaguar collection that I must admit since I got my uh, flash cart, I've been umming and erring. Should I sell it on? And, you know, the amount of money I could earn off that. But there is something nice about having the original games. Maybe not if you run a retro gaming museum and you want to keep the game's in pristine condition. Now, this is our friend Neil from RMC, who, of course, has recently opened the cave up to the public. And, you know, I don't know if you guys have been following his uh, his blog videos when he's been building it over the last few months. The place just, just looks incredible. But this has actually been making a few headlines in places like a Tom's Hardware pit this up as well. This ingenious system that he's got of using a Raspberry Pi to change games by scanning the barcodes on the original packaging. I, I mean, I, I just, I think that's insane, but I just want to comment on the fact that he's actually turned the front of the museum into like a shop as well. It looks like an old school yeah. WH Smith, yeah. doesn't it? It's so, it's, it's so cool. annoying because I went to the cave pre, pre-shop, so I saw the whole thing, but that room was like an empty space and then I've seen it kind of develop. Oh, he's, uh, he's, he's utilised it really well. He's oh, done he's done really well, yeah, yeah, and he's like wrapped all the stuff up and... Uh, He's just got all the right fonts in there and the right kind of colour, the the brownness yeah. in there of a kind of British computer <laughs> store. Yeah, know? absolutely. So, so so just to get my head around this, he's he's kind of set up like a try the latest games like demo booth, hasn't he? Like built into the wall yeah. around, around the uh the seventies wood panelling, which I love. Um, but is it literally you just you pick a game up off the shelf and he's got some fantastic games there? I can see like Resident Evil Two on dreamcast and stuff some really you know top end titles but you just scan the barcode on it and then it will play it yeah, yeah. well you know we we covered his mr multi-system before mm. which was a a kind of uh fpga uh device the mister and uh he created uh a interface for it and uh a way to consoleize it essentially well this is um using that device but also a scanner a old school barcode scanner he picks up any game, scans it, it finds the title within the mister, launches it up, 
after uh, the barcode's detected it and with Linux magic. And then suddenly you're able to play the game in the store. And I think this is a really, really amazing idea. And I just think they wouldn't have done it in the stores, though. It's it's good for nowadays and that kind of nostalgic thing, but they wouldn't have done it because they wanted to sell you a crap game that um, looked really good in the case. And then if you went and you scanned it and you played it, and you're like, oh, God, this is really bad. They wouldn't have been able to sell you it. So they needed a bit of intrigue and uh, mystique around the game, I think. Yeah, I mean... I- well, they, they, could, they couldn't have done this 30 years ago because <laughs> they didn't have stuff like the Mister and that then. Um, but I, I do think it is a very cool way of keeping these games in good condition. So I imagine, you know, he's got a lot of these kind of wrapped up and the boxes look immaculate, obviously, you know, because it's, it's like a, it's a, a museum that's very hands-on. But I like the idea that you don't have to open the box and take the cartridge out and put it in a machine and, you know, a thousand other people haven't handled the manual and everything. It's a good way. And, you know, it's a bit more of an experience, isn't it? Because rather than just picking something from a menu, there is a big part of it, isn't it? Holding the packaging and looking at it and that. I think that, that is a big part of the experience. Yeah, it, it, it's, it is a big part of the experience, but it, it really reminds me, none of us have mentioned it, like, do you remember like the old Virgin Megastores and HMVs where you would do it with the CD and then you could listen to a track from it? Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, it, it really reminds me of that. But, you know, you're not wrong, Ravi, like about the crap games and stuff like that because from what I can see, he's only got good games on the shelves. Yeah, uh, he's, he's the picked picture. them well. I'm sure he's got some trash in there as well just to <laughs> add, add the realism. But... um. It's really interesting how he's done it as well. It's like a Python script. Uh, it's called Barcode Rattler, and it uses uh, the Mr. Batch controller, which is a, a kind of, I think it's like batch files that run on, on the, uh, uh, and does commands on, on the Mr. Mm. And you connect a Raspberry Pi, and then you send the stuff over, and it tells the Mr. to do things in Linux. And uh, I just think it's really smart that all this can be automated as well. Now, I don't know. They haven't got the PS1 core running amazingly well yet on the mister it is in development so i think this is probably limited to like the 16 or 8-bit titles but um just the fact that you can kind of do that is is really amazing and testament to him you know it's like on tom's hardware and um Mm. yeah it's been all over the place actually because people just i think they just really love the concept i think what he needs to do though is do you remember the barcode battler if he could somehow use yes, that as I, an interface. I, I, yeah, <laughs> what is it called? Like barcodes with a Z, wasn't it, or something? Yeah, yeah. You, could, you could fight with the barcodes. If he could do that afterwards, so you could have, you pick your game and then you both fight it out. Oh, that would be good. And even the fact that he's got like an old school um, barcode scanner. You know, I was a weird kid. I remember actually really wanting one of those as a kid. Yeah, <laughs> just at home. The, yeah, I remember them as well. <laughs> what? What you mean the the barcodes is in like the little monster game? What yeah, you the, just the, want, a barcode scanner you just in the supermarket? Just, yeah, what? Just walk around <laughs> scanning things. Yeah, I, I thought that was really cool. My, my aunt used to run an off license, and she, she had a labeler. I remember asking my mum, "Can I have a labeler for Christmas, please?" And she didn't get me one. I was devastated. He needs to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> what you know, they I could just see in, you uh, now, Dan, when you're like seven years old in your bedroom with a full on like Audi like check out <laughs> scanning things in your room just that would have been my just dream ripped straight out of the shop <laughs> well you know they have the uh beep sound on it when you you know beep when it goes yeah. by and in some of the american ones they have the like sonic coin collecting sound if you could do that on it as well that'd be really good <laughs> Yes, when we do a road trip to uh, the cave, which, you know, we, we will definitely do at some point this year. That's me. I'm straight on that barcode reader. Watch out. <laughs> Where's Dan? He's on the barcode reader. <laughs> Scanning <laughs> <Get him off laughs> it. 
Now, are you guys uh, fans of Shadow Man? You ever played that back in the day? I never played it. Um, it was one of those games I saw everywhere. You know, it came out on the play. And you would like it, I think. Yeah, it look it does look right up my street. You know, um, you know I've heard people say it's 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 a tough game and it doesn't hold your hand. You know, and they say it's Dark Souls hard, but I think classic games are just they're just hard. They just don't hold your hand, but. You know, it was everywhere. It was on N64, PlayStation, and Dreamcast, wasn't it? All I remember yeah. is the front cover of him holding the skull. That's yeah. it. Like, I don't remember the game at all, actually. So this is all you, Dan. <laughs> well, I, I just admit, I, I didn't play the game either. Um, <laughs> but I, you're right about that, that, that cover image. I remember they went hard with this. They yeah. were advertising that everywhere. Yeah. And I remember reading, you know, seeing that in music magazines, like, you know, Mix Mag and DJ Magazine and Ministry of Sound Magazine. They would always have that iconic image. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the one very big on the advertising. Yeah. I, you, like, like you say, I remember seeing it in, like, my dad's magazines, you know, like in FHM and stuff like that. It, w- mm. it was definitely like, this is, This game isn't for kids. Like, this game is like, you know, it's, for, you know, it's for adults as well and stuff like that, you know. And it came from, is it an acclaimed game, I believe? Um, uh, yeah, Teesside Studio. Teesside so, Studio. Newcastle. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Um, but yeah, they've they've remastered it. Coming out on the well, it'll be out now. By the time of this, uh, by the time the show comes out, it came out on the seventeenth of January. Um, mm. It's come to Switch eShop for twenty quid or twenty dollars. Apparently, they have updated it a little bit. I don't think was there a Shadow Man two. I feel like there was. I could be. I could be wrong. But you know, it's an IP that hasn't been around for a long time. Uh, mm. And I think the original was 2000, 2001, around there, maybe, maybe even 99. So it's cool cool to see him again. But, you know, one one of the main things kind of with the remaster, um, obviously, is they've touched up the graphics and stuff like that. But interestingly, it had tank controls, you know, like the classic Resident Evil tank controls, but they've yeah. completely revamped this into a a much more kind of modern third-person kind of shooter uh, controls, you know, probably a little bit more what people are used to these days um, which I think is pretty cool and there's a there's a little bit more of hand holding in it you know sometimes apparently it was quite difficult to, to know where you had to go next and there was no kind of map whereas I think now from what I've read it kind of points you in the right direction still without giving you a map so I'm not too sure how that works but apparently they have made it slightly bit slightly more accessible it's probably to stop people from you know getting game of rage with it because i don't know where to go um but it's good to see it back you know yeah and i'm just going to correct uh t sides in middlesbrough my geography is awful so <laughs> <laughs> glad you cleared that up i think middlesbrough's in t side the other way around oh god no. um, <laughs> sorry i need to go visit now and apologize uh, but yeah th- this game looks um it looks really dark doesn't it you know looking at the screenshots and everything and and i, I do know that yeah the, the impression i've got of this and i remember seeing it around at the time i think my friend neil had it on the on the N64, um, mm. he was quite into those kind of games back in the day. Um, yeah, and I remember the tank controls and just get, him getting lost all the time in it. So I've got a feeling there's like a lot of maze elements on it, which, you know, it would make sense that maybe that was a big point of frustration for many gamers at the time that might need a bit of a helping hand today. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely one of it. I ain't got the time these days. I'm definitely one no. of those gamers like, tell me where I want to go. I just want to carry on playing the game. You know, and, and they're kind of like saying like it's sort of in the vein of, you know, ocarina of time but then maybe is it a little bit more kind of like ratchet and clank it's not a bad game the reviews are saying it it is a good game it was just it was hard 
you know, there has really been that resurgence as well in the last couple of years of tough games such as Dark Souls having like that big appeal of like, have you completed this game? You know, and I don't think people will be like, have you completed Shadow Man? <laughs> like kind of thing. But it's cool, you know, to see it, to see that revamp and these old IPs getting picked up again. It looks kind of industrial, like manhunty. Um, yeah. Yeah, kind of a quake kind of as well, you know, maybe a bit darker. It's definitely of that era, stuff. isn't yeah. it? And I imagine it's probably one of those games that's got a big, um, like, niche fan community around it. Yeah. Um, so, so it is cool that it, that it is back enough for, for people to play an updated version of it. And I always like it when they do that, because, I mean, we've, you know, we've mentioned it before on the show, we, we've bought the same games so many times on different platforms from back in the day. It's nice to actually have some kind of forgotten classics, you know, from many of us actually yeah. re- resurging again. <laughs> I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I kind of feel like I missed out on that because the advertising campaign... Looking at it, I was like, oh my God, yeah. You know, that, that campaign from 20 years ago still sticks in my mind. So I kind of feel like I want to give it a try now. So. Yeah, You've got yeah. a cosplay as the guy um, holding a skull. <laughs> that would look good. <laughs> yeah, everybody remembers the guy holding the skull. And they're like, oh yeah, Shadow yeah. Man, but I didn't play it. That seems to be the, the common thing. So this is where somebody in the comments is going to go now, like there's been 17 Shadow Man games, guys. <laughs> 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 you know, it never stopped. But um, I don't think, I think, there was a Shadow Man second. I think it was called Shadow Man Second Coming or something like that. Um, but I think that was it, just the two. So it's cool to be back. Yeah, and that magazine advertising back in the day definitely paid off, I think, if we all you know, Yeah, we all remember it. <laughs> now, before we get into our chat all about, you know, stories from Sega and the early days of Virgin Entertainment, Nick Alexander coming up in a minute. Um, this is a cool little thing you found, Ravi. Console watches. Now, I must admit, I'm, I'm quite a fan of, of watches. And these look awesome. Yeah, well, this this is also in reference to Joe as well, because Joe went to Japan, so I want to hear about his his vending machine experiences. But um, th- these are by uh, Takara Tomi Arts, and that they're like, you know, you get these little knickknacks in in uh, these vending machines in Japan, and they're they're pretty well designed um, little watches, and um, you've got an actual PlayStation on there, like. The, the PlayStation original console. And then you've got like a rubber strap around it with the symbols on it. And um, you, you press a button or you press on, on the actual disc drive of it and it pops up. It's got a little disc in there and then it's got the time in the middle. It's pretty cool. What what do you think about it, Joe? And I think, I think this is called a uh, Gaja, Gajapon. Sorry, I butchered it there, which is uh, the kind of vending machines that uh, dispense these, capsule toys in japan yeah so so gacha balls is the, the short version because i'm the same as you i'd be like gashapon i think they're called my, my wife knows all about it she loves them but yeah gacha balls they're you know they're blind box buys essentially for, and you know there's these vending machines in japan well especially where i was in tokyo they're everywhere you know there's even like shops dedicated to them you'll walk into a shop and it'll just be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these vending machines where you put you know, you put your money in and then you twist the... Can I try and describe it for, like, British listeners or for you guys? Like, you know, the old glass case machine... Like, like, like the gumball tw- ones. Yeah, you put 20p yeah, in and yeah. you twist it and then the ball comes out or the sweets come out the bottom. They're like them, um, but it's these blind buy for balls. Like, they're usually, like, two from 200 yen to, like, 500 yen, so, like, a couple of quid. So you don't know what's in there? You don't know what's in there, but y- right. you will get... You will know what the genre is and what you can get because there'll be a poster on the glass you know of the actual vending machine or behind it and it will say like you know there's 
Dragon Ball Z characters in here and it'll have like the 10 little plastic Dragon Ball Z characters you can get or this one's Pokemon and there's 50 different Pokemon you can get from this one. I only did a couple. I did a couple of Dragon Ball Z ones because I love it. And I did a couple of like Pokemon ones and stuff. But my wife just went crazy, like, you know, getting watches and, you know, <laughs> stuff like this. Like she got like a little Gremlins watch with Gizmo on it and, you know, just really fun stuff. Um, and it, there's a there's a big, big, big culture for it in Japan. Well, well, apparently in Mega Man 4, there's an enemy that is an actual vending machine that fires out uh balls catch your balls at you as an enemy and uh in shenmue as well you can actually go around and you can go around uh, and use these little yeah. machines yeah but they, they are when i say they're everywhere they are everywhere the shop's dedicated to them there's uh you'll go into like a convenience store and they'll have a couple on the entrance do you know what i mean and, and people literally you know um you know, they, they, they literally go and they will go, right, I want to get all 10 out of this machine. And they will just sit there putting their money in, just hoping to not get a repeat because obviously you get repeats and stuff like that. Um, I'm pretty sure uh, Metal Jesus did a video, not a video on there, but he did a big video about how when he went to Japan and he mentions it in there and they were all trying to get them and stuff like that. So that's a good place if you want to hear more about it. But yeah, these look really cool, these little little game console wrist watches, uh, wrist watches that you were... Uh, can get in there. I mean, I, there's four of them, isn't there? There's the, the black Sega Saturn, the white Sega Saturn, and then the PS1, and then the original PlayStation. And I can tell you now, I'd definitely be putting all my my yen in there trying to get all four of them, all four variants. So that's how they get you with them. And they'll probably be on eBay for like 50 quid next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. more than likely, yeah. <laughs> and they've got little discs in them as well. So one of them's got yeah. like Virtual Fighter 2 in there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, each one's got its own unique, like, because they because it, it's like the console's closed and then you press the button on it and it will you know open up the disk drive and it will have the time in there written a digital clock in there but it's written on the on like the PlayStation disc or the uh, Sega Saturn disc isn't it and each one has a different disc as well like you say you've got um Virtual Fighter 2 Sakura Sakura Wars 2 Everybody's Golf and Ark of the Lad um, I'm not going to lie, I only know Virtual Fighter 2 out of those ones. Um, so probably quite Japanese games, but still really fun. Yeah, if you want to read more about that, I'll, uh, I'll link up the article and the screenshots and everything else we talked about. You'll find it all in the show notes on your podcast app, or you can head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now we're into the new year now, and it does mean the first patrons hangout of 2022 is coming up this weekend. I know the last one was only like you know, just before Christmas. It feels ages ago since the last one, doesn't it? I, I can't believe that. It's like we're like in the third week. Well, we're at the end of the third week of January now. It's yeah. just like, Jesus, like, yeah, we better do a uh, patron hangout, guys. <laughs> yeah. So this is always, I mean, it's so much fun. This is where our patrons come on. We do Sunday nights. We always do it, don't we? Because we, we generally find that time works best for, you know, so a lot of our patrons are parents. So, you know, the kids have gone to bed by 8 p.m. We just have a bit of a chat. You know, we have a couple of hours where we show kind of our pickups and um, new members who come on. The initiation is also got to show their retro collection in the games room. So we always enjoy that as well. We also help each other out. I mean, you know, sometimes we've got questions, we exchange tips and that kind of thing. It's really a bit like, I mean, we've, we've described it as a, you know, a virtual pub meeting or a virtual users group. So we're going to be doing one of those on Sunday evening this weekend at 8pm if you'd like to join us for that. All patrons are welcome and they're also going to be recording the next episode of our patrons exclusive podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. Now um, these are my favourite episodes that we do as well. This time we're going to be going back to the year 1993 
and they're checking out some of the biggest games and the big consoles in that year. It's you and I, Joe, were talking about the other day, the amount of massive games. And, you know, it was huge. Mortal Kombat 2 in that year. You know, it was just a really exciting year for gaming, I think, 93. Yeah, man. And, you know, we don't just do the gaming years as well. We we do a lot of kind of like our favorite games and favorite consoles and a lot yeah. of kind of like top five lists and stuff like that. Um, and then we've also done it where we've reviewed games that people have wanted us to play and stuff like that, which I think we're due another one. That must have been about a year ago since we've done that last. Um, so, yeah, we're definitely due one of those. But, yeah, these are all things you get if you do support us on the Patreon. Yeah, so if you'd like to uh, get involved on that, all the details to back us on Patreon. And, of course, you know, it is the lifeblood of this podcast. It's what helps us bring out an episode every week, all our, our running costs and everything are taken care of. So we hugely appreciate your support. You'll find all the details at theretrohour.com. Okay, Nick Alexander coming up on the show in just a minute. Just a quick reminder as well, if you listen on a podcast app or service that allows you to leave a rating or a review, we always massively appreciate them. We've been looking through, actually, Ravi, haven't we, the last couple of days on... Uh, on Apple Podcasts. We've got some nice reviews on there. Drewster, uh, he left one a couple of weeks ago as well. Thank you to Adunga105, uh, Postal N, who left us a few uh, nice five-star reviews and uh, some lovely comments in there as well. That was really nice to read, aren't they? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so nice to get a bit of feedback. You know, uh, we kind of send it out. and We have our Discord community and everyone, but it's just it's just nice to kind of get a like, little review and uh, from from people that we've not heard of before as well. Keep at it, guys. I think importantly as well with the reviews, it helps us get you know up the charts and in front of new people as well, so it's really valuable. You know, Maybe you listen and you think, oh, I, I can't afford to back those guys on Patreon, but you want to do something else that you know is going to help out the show. A little review will take you five seconds. You know, It'll really help get us in front of new people, so we hugely appreciate them. Right, then let's get some stories from uh, Inside Sega Europe and the UK and some early history from uh, Virgin Games as well, with our special guest, Nick Alexander. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. Sega. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the highlight of the show when we welcome on our very special guest. And it is an honor this week to be joined by someone who worked for some of the biggest video games companies of all time, including companies like Virgin and, of course, Sega as well. We're going to get some stories that we don't hear very often about Sega from a British and European perspective. So let's welcome onto the show Nick Alexander. How are you doing, Nick? Thank you very much indeed. I'm, I'm very well, very pleased to be talking to you. Really appreciate you joining us. Now, um, before we get into these you know, massive companies that you work for during your time in the industry, um, it's, it's always interesting to kind of wind back to day one with our guests. I mean, what was your kind of earliest experience of a video game? Yeah. Do you remember when you first discovered the industry? Yes, I do. Um, so I, I was at university 73 to 76, and, and I didn't do much sport, but I played a lot of pinball. And in the my last year there, we got um, uh, a pong machine, uh, which set the pinball table away. So it was sort of very late '75, I guess, and, and um, it was it was great fun. So that was my my introduction. Well, how did you start working in the industry then? So I, I uh, after university, I went to work for British Rail for a, for a year as a fast track uh-huh, graduate trainee. Um, and I thought it was going to be the answer to an awful lot of our environmental problems. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Railways are great at taking an awful lot of something from A to B and very bad at taking a bit of something from here to there, etc. So after, after I'd done that for a year, I joined uh, EMI, um, 
and wanting to get into the music business. And I started within EMI Group and then uh, got a job as a planner uh, in EMI Records. Um, and from there, I was, I was briefly a label manager. Um, the only success we had in my day was Dex's Midnight Runners, which was quite good. Nice. Um, and, and after that, I went to work for HMV Shops as their marketing manager. And we took an awful lot of business away from Virgin, which resulted in kind of, uh, we're getting to, I guess, 1981. Um, uh, so um, I got a, a call from the then managing director of Virgin Retail saying, would I go and have a chat? And, and they wanted me to, to join them. And I didn't, I felt it was sort of not quite the right thing to go from to a direct competitor, really. Uh, so, and EMI didn't want me to do it either. So they, they said, well, let's see what we can find. And they had, uh, they'd started writing computer games uh, for the Atari 400 and the VIC-20. Um, and they didn't have any idea of really how they were going to market them or sell them at the time. They said, would I be interested in, in coming in to do that? So at the beginning of 1982, um, I, uh, beginning of my start in the business. In fact, almost exactly how many years ago is that? 40 years ago. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> time flies. <laughs> I was going to say 30, but it's 40. <laughs> well, obviously that, you know, Thorn, um, Thorny MI computer software, later that became creative sparks after your time there so you were international yeah. marketing manager i mean what were some of the the biggest challenges and triumphs you remember from your role there well i mean we were we were starting from absolute scratch so so uh i think the, the so i needed to create a, a marketing and sales network uh and we were we focused on the united states on the uk and germany to kick off with and we were actually, I, I, just, I just went to look on my shelf to see if I'd remember this rightly. But So we were producing uh, cartridges, both for uh, the Atari 400 and for the VIC-20. So actually getting that cartridge manufacturing set up was, uh, was quite challenging too. Uh, and then so we're now in sort of, we launched in um, autumn 82 and, and the market was really just starting to, to shoot up. Um, and um, it was a well, it was a very exciting period. Well, you did go to set up Virgin Games in 1983. So, how did they finally tempt you away from Thorn then? And what was kind of the story with setting up that company? Yes. So, I uh, had started. I mean, it was as, as I say, late '82. The market was was really just going crazy, and I'd started about to think about setting up um, a computer game company myself, which seemed. <laughs> everybody else was, you know, why not? And I got, just as I was sort of putting those thoughts together, I got a call from Richard Branson uh, and went to see him on his houseboat uh, and with his then one-year-old daughter, Holly, kind of crawling around the floor while I was trying to be serious. <laughs> um, and uh, he wanted me to go and run Virgin Retail. I still didn't want to do that. And I said that I'd been thinking of setting up a computer game company. And he went, oh, yeah, well, come and do that then. <laughs> Maybe you could help us with some other things. So as with many things with Richard, it's, it's, uh, he's, he has always had excellent guts. And his, his one-year-old daughter seemed to like me as well. So I think I was, I was in and that's, that's uh, what, <laughs> when I went to start there in 83. That's how we began. 
So I've seen it, you know, when I was researching before we did the interview, I was um, looking at, you know, stuff on Google and I found an image of you, Richard Branson, actually, together. I yeah. think it was in the press at that time. I mean, was he quite interested in the video games industry then? Why did he want to enter the market at that time? He, I mean, in honesty, he was he was always interested in making money um, and uh, seeing opportunities. Uh, he, at the time as well, you didn't have to, you, you, if you made losses in a new company, you could um, relieve those losses against any other uh, group company uh, for tax purposes. So he diversified into a very wide range of, of different businesses. And, and he just, you know, he thought it was, it was an interesting thing. They didn't really have his, his heart, I don't think. What was it kind of like the, the early days then of, the, of Virgin Entertainment, Virgin Games? What, what do you remember from that kind of initial period then? Any, any kind well, of I, I remember the first day <laughs> right. sitting in an empty office and, and thinking, uh, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I recruited um, two people who I'd worked with at Thorny MI, Angela Fitzgerald and Hugh Band, who were my first two members of, of staff. And um, we started looking for games, which we did by just making an announcement. Uh, so th- this is kind of you know, early uh, bedrooms, uh, boys, 14-year-olds writing games uh, in the school holidays sort of time. Uh, and I, I can't say I'm terribly proud of any of our first products. <laughs> uh, and indeed, I've, I have continued to be pilloried even 40 years later, one called Sheep Walk. Um, which I thought was quite innovative because it was a sort of sheepdog trial game. Uh, but the, the sheep were little white dots and the dog was little black dot. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so it, was, it was incredibly exciting. We, I mean, having had something of a, of a uh, training in marketing in the music business, I was trying to apply some of the uh, lessons that, that I learned from that. And for example, we... We, I, I was trying to think what the equivalent of a tour uh, is for, for artists. And, and I, I, I sort of thought we might be able to make the programmers be stars. And so on our first products, there was sort of biogs of them and pictures. And um, uh, so tried to follow that route. We got this double-decker bus, which we took around the country with the games uh, on and set up in playgrounds or super supermarket car parks. Uh, to, to let people come on board and, and play them. <laughs> but these are all cassette-based games. So if suddenly the power went off, it was <laughs> it had to reload everything. Like it wasn't, 15 it minutes wasn't to load in again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so, but it, I mean, it was a period of, of extraordinary fun. I, I think I look back at that as probably being the most exciting time of my life, actually. Yeah, and I think, you know, you mentioned about that, that sheepdog game then as well. It did kind of feel like, you know, everyone was just experimenting to kind of see what worked, I guess. It wasn't as safe as it is today, you know, where they generally stick to the known titles and franchises. Yes, well, indeed. And, 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 and in that, you know, so we were um, getting programs in and paying advances to the, to the guys who'd written them of, of maybe you know, £1,000 or £3,000. You could go get, get a, an order from... Uh, John Rowlands at WH Smith for maybe 5,000 units. Um, you were selling them to him at £3.50 um, wholesale, and, and the manufacturing costs were about 35 pence. So, you know, you could afford to take a few risks. 
very different financial model to now. Well, I remember being a kid and, you know, having my two pounds pocket money on a Saturday and riding my BMX to my local computer store and picking up Mastertronic tapes for my Commodore. You know, that was a regular weekly thing. And I know that um, Virgin bought Mastertronic, which was a a huge budget label at the time. What was kind of the backstory there then? And why did Virgin have an interest in Mastertronic? So um, at the beginning of, uh, I'll go back to Mastertronic launched at the beginning of 84. And, and it really did take the world by storm because, in truth, they were selling games for one ninety nine that were every bit as good as the games the rest of us were selling for six, seven, eight quid. Um, so not not surprising that they were very quickly popular. So the everything had overstocked the Christmas '83 because the pre, a year earlier um, uh, nobody had enough enough stock, uh, enough inventory, neither the retailers nor the publishers. And at the beginning of uh, 84, there were something like 500 computer game companies uh, in the UK. Um, and the market just collapsed overnight. And the sort of wholesale price of the game went from something like 4 quid, 3.50, down to about 30 pence. And actually, at that, at that point, <laughs> Richard Branson had just decided he wanted to um, start an airline. And, and he asked me to go and be the marketing director of that for a year. And, and I took my, my team off, off computer games, uh, or the marketing people and put them onto, to aeroplanes. Uh, so, so it took a, a little bit of while for the, for the mainstream market to come back. And we bought Leisure Genius in 1986, who had the rights to Monopoly and Risk and, uh, Scrabble and lots, lots of other games, which was a really, good step forward for us. And the following year in 87, Mastertronic had done a deal to get uh, Sega's distribution rights in the UK. Um, but they needed, the way that Sega operated with the third-party distributors was that you had to give a letter of credit up front. Uh, and, and effectively, you needed resources in the bank to, uh, to underwrite that. So Mastertronic came to uh, Virgin to see whether we would be interested in buying a minority share in their company if, for them to be able to buy, uh, send a letter of credit for uh, to take on the Sega distribution. And it was absolutely our, our thought that we wanted to be in the budget business, um, which uh, pretty much vanished um, at the back end of, of 87. But we found that we had a distribution of, of this thing called Sega Master System. And I just I went out to CES in January in 88, beginning of January 88. And, and I could see from how Atari were doing over there that this actually was something that was really going to, to um, get big very quickly. Sega managed to deliver most of the inventory to most of their European uh, retailer, uh, well, distributors just after Christmas, which um, sort of tipped Mastertronic and, and most of the others into near insolvency because they, they, the letter of credit had gone, so they paid for all this stuff, and, it, and by the time it arrived, it was too late to sell it. So that's when we ended up taking on the rest of Mastertronic and and, uh, and and owning it properly. Um, and when Sega heard that we were doing that, they asked us to also take on their French and German dist- distribution because they, they sort of bankrupted their French distributor 
and Ariola Soft, who were, were the German one, just a Bertelsmann, just didn't want to. <laughs> we don't want to play with you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, for, by mid '88, we were their main distributor in in Europe, just as everything started to burst through and grow. So it was um, you know, <laughs> luck <laughs> and a little bit of judgment, but mainly luck. Yeah, very well timed. I mean, you know, like you said, then the, the budget games market was starting to decline around then. And I mean, how much of an issue was, you know, particularly on the home computers, was was piracy a big issue for Virgin? I know when well, kids at school discovered you could copy tapes in your mum's stereo system, you know, that changed a lot of things for a lot of people. Yes, of course. So, so I mean, piracy, actually, I was, I was involved with, with um, getting uh, computer software um, covered under the Copyright Act uh, in about 84, 85, um, and uh, we started something called Federation Against Software Theft. Uh, so, so it, it, it was it was an issue, um, but as the quality of the games and and, uh, and packaging and the market grew, it became less of one. But of course, for Mastertronic, you know, if you got something nicely packaged, you paid two quid. Why were you going to pirate that, really? Well, then Sega took over Virgin Games and so I mean what do you remember about the merger and how did how did your role change there? So um because Sega continued to insist on everything being paid for up front and because I mean, it's not a it's not a secret but but Virgin never really had any cash. Uh and when it when the company floated they were in the city Virgin <laughs> was as always being fully invested. So as soon as he got any cash, he sort of invested in something else and, and grow that. So we were really starting to struggle to be able to fund uh, the uh, products, uh, particularly hardware purchases, that we needed to make if we were going to capture the, the market growth. I think by in '90 we took on Spain as well. Uh, we were working closely with all the other European distributors. Um, and uh, it really seemed to make sense from everyone's point of view that, that um, say goodbye, Virgin out. Uh, so the credit issues would, would then go away and we could really focus on uh, actually selling stuff as well at, at increasingly lower margins uh, on hardware. Uh, which, which is a third-party distributor, you just go, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so, and in terms of my own role, it didn't really change that that much, except um, I probably got to see my bosses more uh, in in Tokyo than um, in Notting Hill. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, I mean, you know, Sega being a, a worldwide company, um, and the Master System. I remember a lot of kids at school having it, but then we have guests on from America, and I know that the the Master System was a much bigger success in Europe. Than it was in the yeah, US. Much. What was kind of the yeah. the reasoning for that then, and how did the markets differ? You know, between Europe and the US and yeah. Japan, was it was it quite varied? Uh, so, having you know that being at Virgin, we always uh, thought in terms of uh, not not appealing to little kids, but but to teenagers and, and their elder brothers. So we really positioned uh, uh, Sega as being. Right from the outset, so, and I know we've we kind of stepped it up later with the Mega Drive, but but as being a kind of cool thing rather than something that Mummy and Daddy did sitting around with with uh, you know, young kids. Whereas Nintendo were very very family orientated, so I think in Sega America, really once they with the Mega Drive or Genesis, as it was called, they decided that um, 
that was a good strategy for them too and abandoned the sort of kiddie one, um, then uh, th- their business really started to grow as well and that markets became more similar. And the only, the only difference in Europe where those things weren't the case was Germany, where there is a very different culture. I mean, German kids, certainly then, I, I believe it's probably still true, play with Lego much longer than, than in any other European territory. Um, you know, parents are much more concerned about violent games. A lot of, lot of games were, that were uh, great successes elsewhere were banned in Germany. So Germany was our least successful market uh, in Europe and, and Nintendo's strongest. Um, and, and, I mean, actually, Sega America had a bigger share than Sega Japan did in their home territory. Um, and I think that you know, Sega, Sega Japan was absolutely fantastic at product development, um, programming, and, and, and having the rights from their arcade machines. Uh, but we, I think Virgin and Sega Europe were actually much better at marketing. And I think as, as um, more experienced and, and uh, wiser marketeers like Tom Klinsky got involved in SOA, that, that they, they uh, started to take a much bigger share than Japan as well. I mean, here in the UK, who did you see as your main competitors? I mean, what was it mostly Nintendo? But obviously, had stuff like you know the Amiga and the Atari ST. Were that were they considered a challenge? It really, it really was Nintendo. And and so so having um, come from the computer game side myself, we all would sit around and talk to one another in the industry about why do we keep making bigger and more expensive and more complicated games which only uh, you know, smaller, smaller number of people have got the hardware that can utilize this. And you're losing a huge part of the, of the market because lots of people get frustrated. Uh, and, and so actually the reason I think why video games came back so quickly was you had products that were really well tested beforehand. You just plug them in, plug and play. Uh, very straightforward. They look nice. They, they, you didn't need to spend days trying to work out what you were supposed to be doing. So we really didn't feel that the computer software publishers were our competition. It was very much Nintendo. Well, the Mega Drive came along, and obviously that was a groundbreaking system. Um, how did you approach marketing that then? Well, in exactly the, the same way as, as we had done, but, but it, was, you know, it was a bigger, better, cooler system. Um, and I'd also had a, a, an extraordinarily talented marketing team uh, who'd come to work with me at Virgin Mastertronic. Uh, Philip Lay, Simon Morris, Jim Heitner, and, and a guy called David Joseph, who was actually one of the juniors. He kind of went on to be a massive figure in the music industry. And, you know, and they were a really extraordinary bunch of people. The first three of them uh, ended up going to Sky after um, I'd, I'd left Sega uh, and kind of making... Sky a much more mass market product, and they've gone on to do lots of other fabulous things since. Um, so, as we got to that stage, I, I, I was leaving quite rightly them to get on with their marketing bits. But, but it was like we wanted to be appealing to, you know, somebody who looks like a, a, a twenty-year-old. And, and if you think that your older brother thinks it's cool, then even if you're well, you know, you're nine or ten or whatever. You're going to think it's cool too. So it's kind of it was a much better. And if your parents don't quite approve, that's even better. <laughs> Aspirational, wasn't it? Well, entirely, yeah. 
Uh, and, and then sort of you know, making sure it was very noticed, long ads, you know, kind of quite powerful, um, and bringing values, production values to the to the TV ads in particular that just, you know, nobody had been doing at that point. I mean, we've had stories on this podcast from, you know, Tom Kalinsky's been on, we've had Al Nilsson on as well, and talking hmm. about, you know, Sega of America's sometimes strained relations with Sega of Japan. I mean, what was it kind of like in the middle, you know, the European division fitting in between them? Is there any kind of memories that stick in your mind from relationships with America or, or Japan? Well, I, 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 I didn't feel that we were between them. I, I think with uh, SOA and, and, and ourselves, SOA, you know, Tokyo of Europe, we're, we're very much in the same mindset and, and having to deal with, with a lot of uh, the same problems. And I just, I mean, it's, I, I'm trying to, I mean, there's lots of, of little factors in, in all of that. But I think that Sega Japan really felt that they were mimicking Nintendo a lot of the time. They, they as I said earlier, were, were absolutely fantastic with with product development um but they really weren't very good at, at sales and marketing and i think that we and and uh and sega of america were really singing from the same hymn sheet and and it just it did get very frustrating at times did you make many trips out to japan then regularly oh yeah any memories that stick out from you for a year amazingly i'd been to japan once uh many years before and I had been there for 30 years. I went, one of my nephews lives, lives in Tokyo, works in Tokyo. And I, I went to see him, I just, I guess, two years ago before the pandemic. Um, and, and it was the first time I really enjoyed going to Tokyo. I'm <laughs> in uh, forever. And, and it just, it was very work orientated. It was, uh, you know, we, I can't say I enjoyed it. Um, the food was great. Uh, and we were certainly taken for lots of nice meals, but but they really didn't like letting us out of their sight very much. And you know, so we'd we'd uh, go out for dinner in the evening, finish about eight or nine, and then we'd have to get on the phone to to Europe and and start you know acting on the things that we've been talking about during the day. So I remember those trips as being completely draining, <laughs> um, and uh, not something I, I look forward to. Well, let's get back to, you know, marketing the Mega Drive um, in the UK and Europe. And I remember, you know, in the UK, the, the TV adverts, they stick in my mind for when I was a kid, you know, Sega Pirate TV and the Cyber Razor Cut. Every kid at school wanted, that, wanted one of those. Um, what was kind of the story behind those campaigns and where did those ideas come from? So, so really, I mean, so, so uh, by that time, Philip Lay and, and Simon Morris were driving, uh, were driving the marketing campaign forward. Uh, we had a... a WCRS were our, our ad agency. It was exactly the same positioning as what we had been going for from the outset, but with a bigger budget and, and on a greater scale. I, I remember that, you know, they just stick in your mind, though, that they were really, really powerful campaigns. And the fact that, you know, I can remember them clear as day 30 yeah. years on proves how effective That's they amazing. were. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, I mean, what was kind of the, the gaming industry like in the UK during that era? It must have been quite an exciting time. I mean, I've heard stories from uh, other guests about the legendary Indians, you know, the, the industry dinners that were held. And, yes, uh, yes. Well, I mean, it, well, it, was, it was an enormous amount of fun. I mean, it, as, as the 90s, it became a much bigger and more serious 
but we were, you know, in the in the early eighties, we were all kind of making it up as we as we went along. As, as you said, yes, some some time back, and it's just it, it was you knew everybody. I mean, it was a, it was a, a very small business, um, and you know, live hard, play hard, work hard. And, but it was. I still have a large number of friends from those days. Um, and I just, I'm, 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 you know, right place, right time. And my goodness, what a lot of fun it was. Were there any launches that you went to that, that you remember? And I think so the, 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 when we, the, the first uh, launch that, that uh, we did, we, we got a, a Mrs. Thatcher lookalike. Um, I mean, there might be a picture of that with Richard Branson pouring a glass of beer over her head. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we did it at the Roof Gardens, which was, uh, I think, probably still is owned by Virgin. And that was that was very glitzy, but but actually when sort of going to all those other trips, as, as the launches got got more and more extravagant, mm. I was working harder and harder. You can't even know, and you'd have a meeting with SAJ, so say say around again CES either in, in Vegas or uh, Chicago. Um, it just it's like I've got to be up in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think I I better try and go to bed now. <laughs> Well, how closely was Sega working with third-party developers and companies? I mean, were you giving them much help? So this was one of the issues that, that I had with Sega Japan. Um, and um, I felt that the more third-party software there was, the harder it would be to make sure that your, your products, your own products are being stocked widely uh, but Japan was very keen, again, sort of very much focused on inventory risk, that they would uh, they would make the third parties buy the product from uh, Sega Japan. But I kind of slightly got in their way because they as they got they gave licenses to more third parties. I then do European distribution deals with them. Which sort of meant that we didn't lose control of pricing and um, range of titles and all those other bits and pieces. That, that uh, and and I just I I think that one of the reasons why video games were so successful was because there were relatively few titles, um, and and they were all very well executed. And I think you know exact opposite to what computer software was in those days where there were hundreds and hundreds of titles um, trying to get anybody to, to know which they were. And, and you know, frequently, uh, two weeks after launch, they had to be recalled because there were bugs in them. And, and, and everybody was kind of rushing stuff out all the time. And actually, the discipline that, that cartridge manufacturer imposed on the market really was very helpful to, I, I think, Improving uh, choice, well, improving the, the experience for the consumer, and, and that's to a very large extent why the computer games and you know were dipped down a lot uh, in in terms of volume of sales, uh, and and video games took took their place and built a much much wider audience too. But also that that um, you just. Uh, uh, so the, the process that you had to go through uh, in order to, because you were you were having to manufacture, place orders for manufacturing the cartridge software three months up front. 
So, and Sega wouldn't, Sega Japan wouldn't let you start to manufacture it until their testers had, had torn it apart. Um, and you know, again, having been on the other side of the fence, you go, oh, I'm not quite sure what this, but we you know we're going to miss the launch date, which is three days' time. And we're, you know, so by the time we're pushing out discs of, of uh, games or CD-ROMs with the manufacturing times are very, very rapid, you know, you just, there was, well, you weren't able to, to do it until it had been properly debugged because because the um, the manufacturers through Sega Japan just wouldn't let you. Yeah, that quality control was there, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, obviously Sonic came along and, uh, you know, no pun intended, he was a real game changer. Um, yeah. How did you approach marketing Sonic initially then? And did you see that from the outset? Did you see that this was going to be a real change for the Mega Drive? I think from um, the first reception, I mean, Sonic was, was even on the Master System, was, was one of the most successful um, characters, if not the most. So, so Sonic 2 coming along uh, really was Mega Drive sales were just going crazy and sort of ramping up. Uh, and, and that was that was a good lead um, uh, title to to go out with and to work around, and, and even you know, general generalist journalists who who uh, didn't know much about video games at all. But it's you know cute character, quite fun, and it's cartoony. I mean, you know, not unlike Mario, <laughs> uh, and and um, I just it had it had huge appeal. So it was clear that that we should get behind it and, and make it our, our lead title. And I do remember Sonic Tuesday extremely well. Um, we did a big launch down in, in the basement at Hamleys where there was a sort of Sega arcade uh, had, had been built down there, um, for, not just for the occasion. Uh, and we were moving to new offices um, actually just then. So we were, we'd been working in rather higgledy-piggledy buildings around Notting Hill, um, and uh, so and lots and lots of little little outfits. I mean, we're moving into that rather um, large um, building on the corner of Ells Court Road and Cromwell Road, which I, I not is not a building I was fond of. And it was a real a move to become much more corporate, which I tried to resist. But so after the Hamlet launch, we went uh, to take some photographs sort of outside our new building with the with the ad agency. And I remember I got a ladder and I've got I can't quite remember what I was holding, but I sort of was at the top of the ladder with this Sonic two which I was trying to cut out, which I was trying to attach to the outside of the building. And I do remember as I stood there thinking, I bet it's all downhill from here <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> So the next the next morning, we went back to to um, our our existing office, and outside the front door, and I still have no idea how how it got there. Was a toilet bowl. And I just thought, okay, <laughs> <laughs> not sure what point it made. <laughs> Time to move. <laughs> well, I mean, you know that that campaign was Sonic Tuesday. I mean, you know, from memory, I think that was the first kind of example I remember of a a global launch. Um, was that kind of yeah. hard to coordinate? Obviously, that was kind of the pre-internet era. Was it was it a difficult thing to make sure in all, all countries it was the same? Uh, well, we didn't. I mean, it was it was a global launch date, but the campaigns weren't the they weren't the same in the in the three territories. So I, my my issue was trying to make sure that all of our European countries were were following, and we did. We had faxes then. 
<laughs> so everything was by fax. And that in itself was already a huge uh, improvement on telexes, which are what we were using before the fax. So, um, so it actually, that, that wasn't so tricky. And, and uh, it was really the, the product availability was down to Sega Japan. Uh, and and they, they did us proud. And I guess you know, even telling retailers, because I mean, I imagine they had to get stock in early. Was it was it kind of a you tell them you can't sell it until this date, and hope they wouldn't kind of break that rule? Uh, so so we uh, didn't let them have it till a few days beforehand, and some of them did break it, but most of them didn't. <laughs> well, the biggest buzzword, you know, in that era, kind of ninety one, ninety two, was a CD ROM. You know, when that came along, I remember reading so much about that. What did you think of the Mega CD? It was it was very much an interim product. So, so I think in in I, I can't remember when it might have been ninety. It might have been early ninety three. I or ninety two, and we were having a sort of tripartite meeting uh, with Sega America, Sega Japan, and ourselves. Um, and and it was clear that the sixteen bit boom was was starting to turn, or we were that close to the very top of it and that that something else needed to come through and the 32-bit machines weren't really ready to go and the mega cd w- was a bit of a kind of halfway house of having something to launch and and in truth it, it wasn't it wasn't a terribly successful product uh and it was it was expensive um, I think it probably was a slightly weird concept for for some people, um, and I actually so so we'd also identified uh, globally that we needed to diversify. And one of the ideas that that I took to Japan was that we could buy Thames Television, which was up for sale at the time, had a that still has a massive uh, uh, range of back catalogue, and I thought that if we could use that as the uh, as to give us a unique product flow and and enable people to have much more than than just CD-ROM or CD-based uh, video games but but actually CD entertainment video entertainment um uh, as well and at the same time and and um actually Sega Japan they they really didn't go for that at all they go yeah we want to diversify but not out of video games <laughs> right, okay yeah. that, would have been, I mean, that, that was what dvd became you know a decade later yes, wasn't exactly. it so, yeah yeah uh and and indeed um pearson who who ended up buying thames uh was who i went to work for after i left Sega. and um you know i think i think they've, they've got themselves an extraordinary bargain there it's probably one of the best best moves that person made better than software tool works <laughs> well, I remember first seeing a Mega CD in my local game shop, and the fact that you could, you know, see even though it wasn't full screen and it was, you know, maybe about a quarter of a screen, a video playing on a games console yeah. that was real. Pe- yeah. That was just—you can't explain it to kids today how mind blowing that no. was. But it was. Yeah. I mean, you'd yeah. never seen anything like that before. Absolutely. I mean, it was. It was. Um, it, it was. It was extraordinary. They're just uh, uh, so night trap. Which actually, I don't know if I've tried to play it. It was, it was terrible, but it was, it was, it was vaguely entertaining. Um, and I think that was sort of the, the Daily Mail sort of rather, you know, the shock horror <laughs> pornography on video games. <laughs> Have you seen it? <laughs> oh. I mean, it was like an episode of Doctor Who. It was, it was about as, uh, 
as pornographic as that, which is not very. <laughs> yeah, we've had the developers on this podcast before uh, talking about it, and yet it's very tame today when you play it. Isn't oh, it? goodness. <laughs> well, it was even tame for it yeah. today. I mean, you know, it really was. <laughs> well, I mean, I do remember that game making the headlines, you know, the fact that it was, I guess, yeah. the first adult game. And then there was also that, and there was Mortal Kombat as well that I remember on the Mega Drive that had blood, and on the yeah. Super Nintendo it didn't. Did that cause, yes. like, much controversy in the press and did, did you kind of like that did it help sales of the mega drive having this uh, controversy around it of course it did of course it did um and it's a jolly jolly good game and but, but in in germany so as i was saying earlier about, about different market in germany they didn't they did a version uh even for for sega that didn't have blood because that would have it would have been banned under the youth protection laws there um if it had uh, but but you know, and of course it's it's it, you know again entirely played into our market position of being the the cooler, more grown up brand rather than the kiddie one. Yeah, all those headlines in the press, the kids just looked at it and thought, right, this is so cool. We need we need to get hold of one of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But have a Mega Drive as well, Dad. And the dads are normally <laughs> yeah yeah we'll get one. Yes, of course. <laughs> so I remember you know when when the Mega CD launched, famously there was a, a TV advert that took up an entire ad break. You know, I think it was like two yeah. and a half minutes long, which was you yeah know, just unheard of for any product at the time. Never mind a video games console. What was kind of the Quite. backstory with that then? Do you remember much about it? Well, I just you know so so. Uh, Possibly the less amazing the product, the the, the bigger the marketing campaign has to be. <laughs> um, and I think I don't think we we played it very frequently. I think I think we bought a few spots, long spots for it. Uh, and I, I really, it is a very long term again. I, I can't remember how many, but it was just you know you use your marketing to then drive a lot of PR off it. Um, and that's what I mean with all of those ads that we've we've been talking about that was a lot of the idea was get the media writing about in the mainstream media rather than just the specialist media well were you surprised when nintendo dropped out of the cd-rom race no i think they were very sensible i mean so and and, and i just I, it was the technology wasn't really ready for it and and you know, so um, we should have been focusing on our on our knitting, really. Well, speaking of revolutionary systems, the Game Gear, um, which you know, <laughs> um, the economics were disastrous. Right. I mean, absolutely disastrous. So, so we were selling the Game Gear hardware at something like ten percent below the price that we were buying it from Japan at, and that's before charging any shipping costs, overhead, marketing costs, anything to it. So we were starting every time, we were losing sort of £10 a unit before before we began, or before we even shipped them from Japan. On Game Gear, well, on handhelds in general, you sell far fewer pieces of software uh, to the, to the uh, hardware. So with, with you know, a standard video game in my day, we'd sell six cartridges, you know, for every every piece of hardware that was sold. And while you, you were making a tiny margin or just covering your costs on the hardware, razors and razor blades, you know, there was a there was a big margin on the on the software and that's where you could make your money. But with handheld you get maybe two or three games most. Um and uh so so the and for us, and we, and we couldn't begin to compete with the Game Boy because it was just in a completely different price bracket. And the battery life was a nightmare. 
Um, and uh, I think it was six double A's, and they'd last a couple of hours. You know, so that that the running costs were huge. Now, I like the idea that we had TV tuner that you could you could put in it. But but you know, the more that we sold, the more that we lost. And so I'm deeply unenthusiastic, and 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 so that was certainly a big issue with Japan because they kept saying we need you to sell more. <laughs> Can't afford to. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. You're right there, because I remember, you know, everyone I knew that had a, had a Game Gear usually played it plugged into the wall, which kind of defeated the object of a handheld yes, system, exactly, really. Yes, yeah. exactly. Did you see the Atari Lynx as much competition? Um, well, so again, I would have done if, if, if we wanted to be in that, in that marketplace, but I just, they were potentially more uh, competition. But actually, what we really needed was something that competed head-on with the Game Boy, because that, that's, that's where there was a mass market. Yeah, and you know, about those software sales, I remember so many people who, the Game Boy was just a Tetris machine. That's the only cartridge they ever had for it, you know. Yes, well, you know, so, so that, going back, they might have had one other if my, if my two, two sales of software for every, every piece of hardware is right. So were you much of a gamer yourself then? And because uh, I know we've talked to Tom Kalinske, you mentioned he's still got a Mega Drive set up in his basement and he, he sneaks down there to play a bit of Sonic sometimes. Were you much of a gamer and did he have any favourite Mega Drive titles? Uh, so, in, in honesty, not especially. I, so, I, I remember when I first got an Atari 400 for, for work at Thorny MI, and there was a game called Caverns of Mars, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, and and then I'd, I'd play strategy games, um, but but not really shoot-em-ups or, you know, Twitch games. or So, um, and I, I'd found that when I was previously in the music business, I stopped really enjoying listening to music, and it, it just it, so it took about you know five years after I left to, to start enjoying listening to music again because you're looking at things in a very different light. Um, but so uh, I play the occasional game on my phone these days, but that's really as far as I go. Yeah, I guess it's that old um, analogy of a, a chef probably doesn't go home and cook in the evening for fun. It's uh, <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> So you mentioned you left Sega in 1994. Um, why did you decide to leave then and, and move on? So at the, at the time, everybody was very excited about multimedia. Mm. Um, and it seemed to me that there was an opportunity to take um, uh, different sorts of media assets, like magazines, and, uh, and would have been DVDs, but, but it, actually they they were the launch of DVDs was was delayed by a couple of years, which was because we had it was CDV, wasn't it before? That was yeah, video pre- CDs. Yeah. So so I, I put together this this plan to create a, a male special interest publishing business, focusing initially on on print magazines uh, and CDVs. You know, I hope they're growing. Uh, but of course, as soon as DVDs were announced, it killed the CDV market. But the magazine bit was was very good indeed, and Pearson were the people who were most interested in in uh, financing it, and that led to uh, us buying uh, Future Publishing, uh, who I'm sure you know very well, um, and it was actually it was a great business. It was so much more sensible a business than anything else I'd worked in previously, you know, because you you could just you know you could launch a product for maybe two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. And and if you get it right, you could sell it every month for years to come. <laughs> um, you could license the content overseas, 
And whereas with with games, particularly by that stage, it was you know it was it was no millions rather than tens of millions the production budget. You put everything out on day one, it either sells or it doesn't. You know, and it's back to the drawing board. So, so I, I really like the magazine business, and it it was funny that that um, so four years, three years later, um, Marjorie Scardino, the new CEO at um, at Pearson, came in and decided to focus the the Pearson business on educational publishing, um, which I think has been shown not to be perhaps the best of ideas. And it amused me enormously about three months ago to see that the market cap for future publishing is now just slightly less than that for Pearson. Yeah, because I mean, at that time, though, it's, uh, yeah, magazines were king, weren't they? You know, it's especially like just well, kind of pre, pre, before everyone had the internet is just the way you found out about everything. Well, so, so of course it was, and, and they really do seem to be monetizing. I mean, future today, um, being able to, to monetize the, the online aspects of it. I thought they bought one of the big um, uh, price comparison engines. Let's go. That's a smart move. Uh, so I just, you know, it, it had to, to, what what it gave you with magazines is a relationship with the reader, um, and a kind of you know unique, trusted, like you know trusted older brother or, or good mate in the pub or something. And, and uh, that, I mean, it, it, it's taken a while to find the right ways to use that relationship and to extend it. And, but clearly that Future Publishing are doing an extraordinarily good job of doing just that. 100%, yeah. To, um, they do Retro Gamer magazine as well, which, you know, yes, focuses yes, on absolutely. what we do, which, yeah, which, you know, fantastic yeah. read. Well, obviously, mate, you left Sega behind. I mean, what was kind of because you were there at the the most exciting time, I think. Yeah. I mean, what was kind of <laughs> yeah. what are you most proud of about your time in Sega? Then looking back, well, I I, I guess the launch of Sonic Two. I mean, that was you know, which kind of I mean crossed over so so broadly. I mean, I think we were on pretty much every TV broadcast or in news bulletins. You know, like the BBC Six O'clock News. And it was just, I mean, that way it was, it was extraordinary. But then you've got to come back down the ladder. <laughs> well, Nick, it's been incredible reminiscing with you. And thank you so much for sharing your stories. No, not at all. Pleasure, pleasure. I mean, what, what are you up to these days? What, what, what do you do today? I, I, so so um, I, after, after Pearson, I, I had a sort of portfolio career. And I worked for uh, as chairman of lots of, of little companies. Um, and Natural Motion, who were bought by Zynga, um, seven years ago or one of them and actually when that got sold I just I, I thought I'll just retire now <laughs> so I've had seven years not doing any work at all and I love it <laughs> sounds well deserved <laughs> well it's uh, I'm certainly enjoying it and, uh, whether I deserve it or not I appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> well Nick it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your stories pleasure. thank you very much thank you very much